Welcome to the Cross-Border Interview Podcast, a podcast about getting out from behind the keyboard and just talking. Each week, we invite a guest or two to sit down and talk about their life and their work. I'm Christopher Brown, your host, and this is the Cross-Border Interview Podcast featuring American author Mark Cushman. Mark, uh, thank you very much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. I, I ask all my uh, guests the same question to start off the interview. You're no exception. Um, where does your sense to research come from? Uh, when I started researching on you, I've learned that you have had multiple books, not just on Star Trek, but on uh, Into the, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, I Spy. You have multiple other books on researching certain TV shows and also a band. Where does your research, sense of research, sense of inquiry come from? From what I was not getting when I read other books. Um, I love reading nonfiction. Uh, I don't read very much fiction at all because I worked in television and video for years and years and did hundreds and hundreds of scripts and can come up with a story in a minute, you know, so uh, there's no challenge there. Uh, but when I read, I like to read uh, uh, nonfiction about people's lives, people's careers, uh, making of television shows, uh, things of that nature. And the thing that uh, uh, there, there's good books and there's bad books on the subject. But the thing that I always feel hungry for uh, after reading these books is more of of what was happening in the moment. Uh, for instance, you can read a book on a famous uh, director and they'll say, this movie came out and it got generally good reviews. And they may give you half a sentence from one of those reviews. I want to read all the reviews. <laughs> I want to know what it costs to make the movie. I want to know where it was shot. I want to know, uh, you know what happened on the set. I want to know all that stuff. And you mentioned a band. I've done a, a two-book series on the Moody Blues. And uh, you know, I want to know what inspired the songs and uh and how the records did and how sales were and what the chart positions were and what the reviews were and when you read most books you just don't get that and so i put it in and uh, most of the tv shows all the tv shows i've written about i spy the Irwin allen shows lost in space voice of on the sea and of course star trek and now the new book series which cover uh, the motion picture and the animated series and the aborted phase two series all from the 1970s um i did all these because i got access to the show files and Gene Roddenberry's papers and Irwin Allen's papers and and so forth. So I was able to see the different drafts of scripts, uh, the memos, the ratings, uh, the production schedules, the budgets, everything, and bring that to the reader because that's what I would want to read if I was reading the book. And when I usually I sit down with uh, my guests, I usually either read their book or watch their movie that they've been in or watch their stand up act. Um, I did not realize how much I was be, I was going to be getting into when I picked up your first book, uh, because <laughs> mo most most books would be at that 300 to 400 pages. But you're 700 yeah. pages for each of your book. So I'm trying to get through them as quickly as possible because I was getting ready for this interview. And uh. 
you you it seems like you left everything out on the table you just put everything in that you found in a coherent way was there anything left on the table uh, left on the cutting room floor at the end of the day what you said okay 700 oh, yeah. is a little too much we need to push this aside or we don't need to put this oh yeah in. yeah the first drafts are always a thousand pages and i have to squeeze it down and usually get it down to six seven hundred uh, a couple of the books have been closer to 800 but you know i mean we'll just talk about star trek for a moment because uh, that that show had such an immense amount of uh, internal files, uh, Gene Roddenberry and Bob Justman and Gene Kuhn and all of them saved everything and they put everything into memos. Uh, so, uh, for instance, Gene Kuhn, he was one of the producers on the series. Uh, he did the second season and a little bit of the first, and and uh, he would read a twenty-page outline from a freelance writer who was on assignment and couldn't sit down and write a 10 page memo to the guy on his 20 page outline. Uh, he would read a 60 page script and he would write a 20, even a 30 page memo to the person on, on that uh, 60 page script. Uh, and there's a lot more on each page of his memos in a script. Because if you look at a script, there's a lot of white, uh, on the page and Gene Coon's memos were single spaced. I mean, it was just, so he was basically writing as many words in his memo as were in the screenplay that he was giving comment on. And uh, it's funny because in, in a couple of those chapters in there, we have a chapter on every episode. Uh, one writer in particular wrote back and said, uh, I'm sending in my revised draft. I know you'll have notes. Don't send me a memo. Pick up the phone and call me because <laughs> he didn't want to read another 20, 30 page memo. Uh, so, so to answer your question, what got left out is is ninety percent of that stuff, because uh, uh, each each volume of those uh, three books that cover the three seasons of the original Star Trek are between six and probably seven hundred pages in length, and. Um, and I'll put excerpts from these memos in there, some of the choicier bits, uh, and connect them together so you understand what they're talking about. And you can see the, the give and take of giving notes and getting responses to those notes. But there's no way I could put the entire memos in there because during any one of those seasons, Gene Roddenberry, Gene Kuhn, Bob Justman probably wrote tens of thousands of pages of memos on those 30 episodes or so they made for that particular season. So I had to kind of go through these things and pick what I thought the readers would find most interesting and, uh, and put them together along with my clutch pedals that connect everything. Now, uh, for those first three books that you set out to write, uh, the, these are the voyages, the original series, volume one, two, and three, uh, you did get permission from Gene Roddenberry to do these. Mm -hmm. Uh, he let yep. you into the vault. He let you behind the curtain. Any Trekkie would be jealous of you right now, uh, looking <laughs> at the, the pure history that you got to look over the people you got to interview. But there's an also a daunting side to uh, picking up a, a franchise like this and writing about it. At any time during the first initial volume, uh, first initial three volumes, of, uh, the, the, like you said, which were seasons, were you apprehensive about releasing them? Because uh, from my standpoint, uh, I, I am a Trekkie. I, I, I did like Star Trek. I do like Star Trek. When you when you see something that is Star Trek and it doesn't fit your narrative, you get angry. So was there any apprehensive apprehension from yourself to say, I need to do this right and I need to make sure that I put the best foot forward? 
Oh, absolutely. And uh, Star Trek was going to be my first book. Uh, These are the voyages. And uh, originally I thought it would be one book. And then when Roddenberry introduced me to 45 plus boxes <laughs> of, uh, of uh, show files and, uh, and said, and there's more, <laughs> you know, I thought, okay, that can't be one book. I can't possibly, well, especially once I started going through the stuff and seeing how incredible it was, how br- brilliant they all were and how funny they were. I mean, Bob Justman in particular, and you're thinking, Jesus, I got, you know, Gene's memos are so passionate and so wise. Uh, I mean, he could have taught screenwriting better than anybody who ever has, and it's all right there in his memos. Uh, Jane Coons were emotional and also very wise. Bob Justman's were very wise, but funny, funny, funny. And so were Dorothy Fontana's. And, and I start seeing all that stuff and thought, oh, my God, the fans want to see this. And uh, there's no way I can fit it into one book. So my publisher said, well, you can do it in three. But I did I, did I Spy. Uh, during the course of that, because uh, I Spy, like a lot of TV shows, a lot of the uh, the stuff was in in uh, meetings. Uh, the memos weren't as extreme. There, there were plenty of them, and there were plenty of drafts of, of the scripts, and all that's in the book. But it was nothing like Star Trek. They didn't save every scrap of paper. And I thought I, I need to do a book first to figure out the format of how I'm going to present all this stuff. So I did I Spy, which was a very important show. It was the first show to, to uh, star a black and a white together on equal basis. The first show where a black actor won an Emmy as best lead in a dramatic series, as best actor of any kind, and uh, won three in a row for that show. It was uh, nominated for Emmys. It won Golden Globe Awards. It filmed around the world and invented the technology that brought that in. So it really kicked down a lot of doors. And uh, and I, it was a, an important show to write about. Uh, but so was Star Trek. But I had to do something other than Star Trek first because when I saw the amount of material, uh, I thought, well, I, I got to get a book done first so I know what I'm doing before I try to do this. And then, uh, fortunately, as you said, Gene uh, was supportive and and endorsed them. And uh, Bob Justman, his co-producer, and John D.F. Black, the associate producer, and Dorothy Fontana, the uh, story editor, uh, they all came on board and helped me out. Dorothy would give me notes. John Black would give me notes. They'd read the different drafts. So I had good support. Uh, from them, the people who were there, the people who knew it. And and the greatest thing from all of them, and I was told this by Leonard Nimoy and, and Walter Koenig and so many others as well, they, they said, now I know what was going on after reading your books. Uh, Bob Cope said that too after reading the I Spy book. <laughs> because, you know, when you're living it, that's one thing. But, you know, 40 years past, 50 years past, you've forgotten a lot of stuff, and it was all happening so quickly anyway. And uh, because I go right to the memos and to the uh, articles and the interviews from the time that it was ha- happening, not somebody being interviewed now and trying to remember 50 years ago, but somebody being interviewed 50 years ago on the set. 
And I, I go and I get all that information and put it together in these books. And so Bob Cope and, and Leonard Nimoy and all, they would read the books and then they would call me up, Harlan Ellison and people like that. And they'd call up and say, now I know what was going on. <laughs> now I can go do an interview. <laughs> and, and there's no better compliment as far as did I do OK or not uh, than getting that kind of uh, endorsement. Well, and that's the thing about the books that I've been reading so far is you don't just talk about the good times. You talk about the conflict that actually happened oh, yeah. between Gene and executives. And you talk about how, you know what, the executives were on Gene's ass, pardon my French, most of the time about what you can and can't do and what you should do and what you oh, shouldn't yeah. do. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't know I was going to come across any of that. I mean, I love Star Trek. It was one of the shows that made me want to become a television writer uh, because when I was watching it as a kid, and I was probably 10 when I started watching it on NBC, uh, it I, I thought, man, this is better written than anything else I'm seeing on television. Of course, I wasn't seeing the 10 p.m. shows, but uh, you know, I had to go to bed by then. But, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, it was better than anything I was seeing as far as the writing was concerned, and I was too young to understand why. But later on, when I started going through these memos and and got to know Gene Roddenberry and pitched to him for Next Generation and so forth, um, you know, he talks in all of his memos about theme and he talks about keeping the protagonist front and center. And in Star Trek, Kirk is the protagonist. So if you're going to do a Spock story, you got to make it a Kirk story even more so than Spock. So, for instance, a Muck Time, Spock's got to go back to Vulcan. And uh, and breed, basically, yeah. <laughs> or, or like a salmon going upstream. That's a line they actually use in the episode. Talk about great writing. And um, uh, so that's a Spock story, but it's Kirk's decision on how to get him there. And it's Kirk's decision to go against Starfleet orders and take the Enterprise to Vulcan when it's supposed to be somewhere else, even though he knows he'll probably get court-martialed and lose his command, because if he doesn't do it, his friend is going to die, and he can't let that. And, he, and there's a line in there about, you know, he's saved my life more than once. I owe him my career. And so Roddenberry would make sure that the writers understood that the, the really difficult decisions have to be on Kirk's shoulder. He's the storyteller. He's the guy doing the captain's logs that take us into every episode. So, so you can't come in and say, I want to do a McCoy story. I want to do a Spock story. Fine. But how is it going to be a Kirk story? And you see that in his memos to the writers. So, and also about theme. Uh, what's this about? What are you trying to say in this script uh, besides the obvious? What's the underlining message? Uh, and conflict, as you just said, Chris, conflict is such an important part of any story. Conflict between the characters. So Roddenberry preached that in all of his memos, and he gave great notes, and he did that to me, too, when I pitched to him for Next Gen, and, and on and on. Um, but what I was not expecting was all the conflict behind the scenes, not necessarily between Roddenberry and his people. They would have disagreements, and you'll see that in the memos or disagreements with Leonard Nimoy about something. But uh, between them and the studio and the network, and every single episode was a battle. It was a battle internally. Uh, I love uh, Bob Justman's job was to take the script and get it filmed. And so Gene Kuhn's job was to get the script rewritten. 
and so forth. And Roddenberry oversaw everything. And I love the memos from Justman where he's writing to the two genes and saying, if you don't take this out of this script, I'm going to start sending you my psychologist bills <laughs> stuff like that. And one, he says, if you don't take this out of the script, I'm quitting and I'm not joking. Uh, so there's that kind of conflict, but it was friendly conflict. It was just trying to get the job done and say, we can't afford to do this. It's one thing for you guys to put it in a script. It's something else for me to figure out how we're going to film it. So that's friendly conflict, and there's a lot of it. But the adversarial conflict between Gene Roddenberry and NBC it grows through all three seasons. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and finally results in the series getting canceled, getting moved into a terrible time slot and canceled because NBC just got to the point where they were tired of fighting with Roddenberry. They didn't want him to tell the type of stories he was telling, and he wanted to make commentary on everything that was going on on Earth. So where does that come from for Gene? Because he did push the boundaries a lot in Star Trek, and you do mention it a few times in your book, but where does it come from? Is it him just being from his like police background, being a sergeant? He's just going to push the boundaries, see how far he can push it before he gets canceled, or he just wanted to tell the stories that he wanted to tell? He wanted to be the Jonathan Swift of TV. And Jonathan Swift was an English author back in the... God knows, three, what, 400 years ago now? Yep. 300 years, certainly. And, and he wrote Gulliver's Travels, among other things. And Gulliver's Travels was filled with a lot of politics, a lot of commentary on England from that time. But back then, uh, if you wrote something the king didn't like, you would be brought in and they would say, which hand did you use to write this? And, and they would chop that hand off. So Jonathan Swift had to kind of, uh, sugarcoat his politics in a way by staging them in a make-believe land uh, where Gulliver goes. And, and so Roddenberry loved that. And he had been writing TV throughout the 1950s and early 60s and produced a series called The Lieutenant in the early 60s. And he was constantly coming up against network censorship. And the stories that he wanted to tell, that he was just burning to tell, because it was stuff that he felt mattered, stuff that people should know, they should see, they should think about, uh, weren't being told. And every time he would try to write it, it would get censored. So he borrowed a page from Jonathan Swift and said, well, I'm going to come up with this show that has stories take place on other planets. And we can talk about Vietnam. We can talk about racism. We can talk about sexism. We can talk about organized religion. We can talk about overpopulation. We can talk about all these themes uh, that Star Trek did. And it was the first show to tackle these things. And they won't censor me as much because it's green-skinned people on another planet. We're not talking about Republicans, Democrats, Americans, Russians, so forth. And, and uh, so he mostly would get away with it, but he had to fight a lot of battles anyway because NBC caught on to what we, he was doing. And they were afraid their audience was going to catch on. And that so there was a lot of fights. Go ahead. And you, see, and you see that in the memos. You see the yeah. memos from NBC. You see them all fighting over, uh, you can't tell this story. And I love the memo from uh, Bob Justman to Gene Roddenberry and Dorothy Fontana after she wrote an episode called The Enterprise Incident. And this was in 1968. And 
it was about basically the USS Pueblo being taken, captured off the high seas by North Korea. And the sailors were held in prison for uh, over six months. Uh, and every night, I was I was about about 10 or 11, I guess, and every night uh, on the news, it would be the Pueblo incident, day 236. That's how it would start. And they would give you an update. And uh, so Dorothy wrote this thing called the Enterprise Incident, where the Enterprise is captured by the Romulans as being a spy ship, and the, and the crew is being held. And, uh, and Bob Justman writes a memo to Gene uh, with CC to Dorothy Fontana, and he says, uh, I wonder what NBC's reaction is going to be when we uh, have the USS Pueblo, I mean, excuse me, Enterprise, captured. <laughs> because they knew, uh, you know, the, that the network was going to go, wait a minute, we're opening our news broadcast every night with this, and you're you're taking the, the heading we use, the Pueblo incident, and you're calling it the Enterprise incident, and you're depicting the same type of a story, basically, and making some commentary here. Uh, and surprisingly, it was one of the few episodes NBC didn't have a heart attack over. They saw what they were doing, and they thought, this is going to get a big rating. <laughs> and so they, they said, go ahead, do it. Don't change the title. And they repeated that episode uh, during the first run season for the third year, about 13 weeks into the uh, the third season, uh, usually back then they wouldn't repeat anything until they'd shown all the, the new episodes. And then during the summer they would do some reruns. But they uh, repeated it, I think, in uh, December or November, uh, just maybe about eight, nine weeks after it originally aired. And the reason they repeated it is because that was the week the uh, the crew of the Pueblo was released and they were returned home. And so NBC said, we got to put that episode on again. So, uh, you know, it's all, it's fun for me to find this stuff out. And that's the stuff I like to read in books, but I don't get it too often in other people's books. And that's the type of stuff I like to share. Now, the first three volumes, like we've talked about, are dedicated to the first three seasons. You research, you get into the vault of Gene Roddenberry, you talk to the Nielsen uh, ratings. Star Trek is a hit. The next three books that you're writing or wrote uh, are these are the voyages Gene Roddenberry in Star Trek in the 70s. Uh, yep. Each one of the volumes is uh, the first one spans five years. The next one spans two years and the following one spans another two years, if I'm not mistaken. This is post Star Trek in a world that Gene Roddenberry was not expecting. Right. Season three uh, was not well liked because it was in the death slot as you uh, so adequately say uh, anything on a Friday night at 10 o'clock in the afternoon in the evening is not going to get high ratings Gene Runberry must have seen the writing on the wall once NBC did that right oh yeah and it wasn't just the terrible time slot uh, the budget had gotten cut as well and there's a memo in volume three uh, uh, season three book that's uh, from Justin saying we're trying to do half a science fiction movie every week on the budget of a radio show. You know, it just got slashed terribly. And so, you know, I, I was uh, in, uh, oh, I guess the sixth or seventh grade, and I, I remember watching it uh, and thinking, well, it's not as good as it was last year. And, and then I find out why in doing these books is because the, the scripts have a slower pace to them. 
the scenes are longer. They don't snap and move as quickly. Uh, a lot of the stuff that was in the first drafts of these scripts had to be taken out because they didn't have the budget to shoot it. Uh, they had to kind of depopulate the corridors because they didn't have the budget to pay for extras. Uh, lots of things were happening. It wasn't that anybody ran out of talent or anybody stopped caring. It's just that the budgets were so horribly slashed. And instead of having eight days to shoot an episode like they did in the first season or seven days to shoot an episode like they did in the second season, suddenly they have five and a half days to shoot an episode. So you got to go with the first take a lot of times instead of saying, Bill, you could do better. Let's let's do another take of that. <laughs> take it down a little. Take it down a notch. Here we go. You know, they couldn't do that. Uh, so we're seeing the result. We're thinking, gee, what what's gone wrong? Well, there's a lot of great episodes in the third season, but, you know, the budget is is bad. The the shooting schedule is bad. The time slot is bad. And the ratings did finally come down. Uh, The show had done very well in its first two years, Uh, did extremely well in its first year on Thursday nights, uh, quite often winning its time period. Uh, NBC moved it to Fridays at 830. Not a good time slot for a show that has a young audience a college student age audience they're no they're not home on friday nights there were no dvrs back then or even vhs players and and so the ratings came down but it was still nbc's top rated show of that night so it was their big show of the night and yet they tried to cancel it and that was about the politics uh, matter of fact, they were talking to Irwin Allen about coming in and doing a show for them because he was doing shows on ABC and CBS. And NBC thought, he won't give us any trouble. He gives you exactly what you want. And uh, But the, the writing campaign was so big, and the marches and everything else, which is all covered in the book and volume two, season two. And, and so they picked it up, but they put it in the desk slot. They cut the budget, and they pretty much, the network said, this will be the last year. Well, the first episode, Spock's brain wins its time period, you know, beats Judd for the Defense, which had just won an Emmy as best dramatic show from the previous season, and the two-hour premiere of Hawaii Five-0, which was in in store for a 12-year run on CBS, uh, and yet Spock's brain beat them both, hands down. But the ratings did start to come down after that because fans were saying, wait a minute, the show's not quite as good. I'm not going to stay home for this. I'm going to go see the college football game or the high school football game. So when the show got canceled, um, everyone thought that's it. Maybe it'll be in syndication a little bit for a year or two. There's only 79 episodes. Uh, Paramount offered to sell it to Roddenberry for a million bucks, actually a hundred thousand, but that'd be about a million today. And he didn't have it. He was just going through a divorce. So he still owned his piece, but he didn't own the whole show. Uh, they put it in syndication, and lo and behold, it took off. And every year through the 1970s, the ratings kept getting bigger, bigger, bigger. The amount of stations carrying it kept getting more and more. And that's when the demand came about to bring Star Trek back. And that's what these new three three books cover, is uh, everything that happened in the 1970s. With Roddenberry, with Star Trek, with Shatner, with Nimoy, because they're all pivotal players. And and the fact that NBC wanted the show back two years after they canceled it, but they couldn't get it back because Nimoy was doing Mission Impossible. So you got to cover all that stuff too, because it all factored in. 
And then when they finally did bring it back on NBC in 73, it was as a cartoon series because they couldn't get the entire cast together to film a new show. Plus, Paramount had destroyed all the sets and given the ship away to the Smithsonian Institute. Everything would have to be rebuilt. But you couldn't get all the actors. Nimoy was on Broadway doing a play. Shatner was in Mexico doing a movie, all this stuff. So the way to do it was to do it as an animated series and get them all to record their voice parts when they were able to. And so that's why we got the animated series, because NBC wanted the show back. They realized they'd made a terrible mistake. The reruns were beating them. The reruns were beating their new shows. <laughs> so they thought, we got to get Star Trek back. And so that started the long and winding road. What I find fascinating in the 70s, Paramount and NBC start screwing around with Roddenberry for a while, saying that the show isn't making as much money as people expect it to, because, as you say, creative accounting. Yeah. This. So if I was Gene Roddenberry, if they came to me and said, we want you to come back and do Star Trek again, I would have said, no, I don't want to and just walk away. Why wouldn't he at that time? Well, he's he was reluctant. And and it's all covered in the books uh, in the the volume one of the 1970s books, which covers the first five years. Yeah. Uh, He was reluctant to come back, but he wasn't refusing to come back. Uh, And and he did come back to do the animated series. Uh, but yeah, they, they were saying it was in the red. I mean, he, he owned 25% of the show and, um, Shatner owned 5% and Paramount owned the rest. And, uh, Shatner's not getting anything. Roddenberry's not getting anything. Nimoy and Shatner aren't getting anything in merchandising for their likenesses being used and all these products that are being sold. Uh, so everybody was kind of not happy in the situation and that's all covered, but none of them were refusing to come back and do Star Trek cause they all love Star Trek, but they wanted to make sure it was going to be done right. So we, you talk about, uh, the 1970s, we have the animated series. It goes on to win a, uh, an Emmy, which it, the first original run did not win an Emmy. So the animated series wins an Emmy for the first season. Second season gets picked up for, if I'm not mistaken, 13 episodes or 10. Uh, for the animated series. Yeah. For the animated series. Yeah. They did a total of 22. They did 16 and then they picked it up for six more episodes. Six which more. Was, yeah, but, but that's the way Saturday mornings worked back then. You know, first season would usually be 16, and they would rerun it a couple times. Then they would do a handful of new episodes for any animated show, and then just keep rerunning them over and over and over, because uh, kids will watch the same stuff over and over again. And uh, and so the network wasn't thinking, well, what about the adults? Because they're figuring, well, the adults aren't going to be tuning in anyway because it's on Saturday mornings. Uh, so it was not a good place to put Star Trek, and, and that's really not what NBC wanted. They wanted it back in prime time. Uh, so this was just kind of something to do while they were waiting to get it for prime time. And then in 77, they started putting together a new series. They were trying to do a movie in 75 and 76, and those chapters are pretty amazing. That's in volume two. Because yeah. they rejected Roddenberry's script with a form letter. <laughs> and then started taking pitches from other writers without even telling him. And yet he was supposed to be producer. Uh, so there was a lot of conflict going on between him and the studio. And they kept hiring people who didn't know anything about Star Trek. Uh, so finally, uh, Paramount was unable to get a good script together. 
So they decided to bring it back as a TV show after turning down NBC time and time again. They were able to get everybody under contract except for Nimoy, who said he would do some episodes, but he, he, he couldn't commit to the full series because he was doing stage productions. Uh, plus, he still had his disputes with Paramount over the merchandising and other issues. Uh, so they were going to do it without Nimoy, and they had a new Vulcan they were going to put on the show. And this is Phase 2, which is a name the fans have made up. It was just called Star Trek Two at that time. Okay, that, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> yeah, I have all the scripts, all 16 scripts, including the first one, which was a two-hour premiere episode called Image. And they were literally a couple weeks away from filming. They built all the sets. They made the uniforms. They had redone the models, everything. And uh, and two weeks uh, before they were supposed to start filming, Paramount pulled the plug because they were they wanted to use the show to launch a fourth network, their own network. And they were having trouble uh, getting stations to come aboard. Not that everybody didn't want Star Trek. Everybody wanted Star Trek. Uh, they, had, they had 200 stations ready to take it if it was just Star Trek. But they didn't want to take the whole network. And a lot of these stations were network affiliates. They couldn't take all of Paramount's programming. But they could take Star Trek. Everybody wanted that. So they weren't having trouble selling Star Trek. They were having trouble selling the whole fourth network concept. And NBC had come to them early in that uh, development and said, we want it. We'll buy it. We'll, we'll give you a commitment for a full season, the two-hour premiere in a full season. And Paramount said, no, no, we're going to launch our own network with this. And they couldn't do it. So that's when they said, take that two-hour premiere episode and make it as a movie. And that's when they hired Robert Weiss, and that gets us into volume three, where it takes off and becomes the making of Star Trek, the motion picture. And the third book, you do go into depth about creating that first movie, Star Trek, the motion picture. You, you talk about the story that how things went wrong and it was over budget and people left the production halfway through. Visual effects were not as well as they anticipated. When you were yeah. researching this, when you were looking into what was going on in that phase, because I was I, my eyes were open in that part because I expected everything to go smoothly because it was a major starting point for what they want it to be a major movie franchise. And yet I'm reading this and I'm going, what's happening here? This is not what I expected to be going on behind the scenes. Well, the, the studio still didn't understand Star Trek. Yeah. And I interviewed one of the uh, Paramount executives and you see his quotes in there where he's even today, and I interviewed him, just in the last year, uh, still doesn't understand Star Trek. Um, so they were bringing in writers to rewrite Roddenberry's script who didn't know the show. Uh, Robert Weiss comes in. He had never really watched the series. His wife had, his kid had, his daughter. Uh, they loved it. And so he was doing catch-up. And he tore down all the sets they had built for, for the new TV series, redid all the costumes because they all looked too much like the original show. So he wanted it to have a, a new look, uh, which is when he went for the unisex uniforms and everything else. Um, and they didn't have a complete script. They started filming and they didn't have an act three. Yeah. So they filmed it pretty much in sequence, figuring by the time they got to where they needed to film act three, that it would be written. 
but uh, but they were really having trouble coming up with an ending and making it work. And again, I had access to all the memos, all the drafts, all the production reports, but also the transcripts of uh, of meetings between Shatner, Nimoy, Robert Weiss, Gene Roddenberry, and so forth. Story conferences as they're filming. They would be filming scenes for the earlier part of the movie, and then they would all go into a room and hash it out over what they felt Act 3 should be. And you're hearing Shatner and Nimoy giving a lot of uh, input, and Shatner getting up and acting out stuff for uh, Roddenberry and Bob Weiss and Harold Livingston and John Povell. And uh, and so it's really, you're, you're a fly on the wall seeing this entire movie come together step by step. So just correct me if I'm wrong here, because I, I think I'm, I'm, miss, I'm missing a part here. Shatner and Nimoy had creative control, some creative control over the script, yeah. right? Of the movie? Yes. They didn't call it creative control. Uh, Gene Roddenberry had creative control uh, with certain limitations. He obviously had to sell his concepts to Bob Weiss because as director, he has creative control and Paramount had creative control. So you've got basically three controlling parties in the room together who are not always in agreement in their contracts. It says they have creative control, but they're sharing that title and that responsibility and that power with uh, two other factions uh, for Roddenberry and ne- uh, for, for I'm sorry, Shatner and Nimoy, their their contracts said that they had script approval. Script approval. So, that's right. Now, now, layman, you know, you and me can say, well, obviously that means they have creative control too, but it was termed as script approval, meaning that you couldn't make them get up and do something that they felt was wrong. Okay, uh, they weren't the ones making the final decisions. But in a way, they are, because if they say, I don't like that, and you bring it to the set anyway and say, well, this is what we want to shoot, they could say, no, I'm not going to do those lines. That's not right for my character. And you can't penalize them or fire them or fine them or anything else because the contract allows them to say no. Uh, so they had that, that level of power coming into the project, and uh, which, which was is- smart. Which is which is smart and agreed, but at the same time, this is a this like, is it because Shatner and Nimoy were potentially screwed over by Paramount and NBC beforehand that they said if we sign on, we want that creative control? Did you find yeah. that information out? Yes, uh, I mean Roddenberry wasn't going to come back unless he was told he had creative control. So they said, "Sure, Gene, baby, you got it. Here it is. It's in your contract." <laughs> But it's also in Weiss's contract, and it's also in Paramount's contract. So, you know, it's like, oh, well, it sounded really good in the contract, but I guess we're three equal parties, and we got to kind of hash this out and come to some form of an agreement. And then we've given Nimoy and Shatner script approval, so we can't force them to take a script that they don't like, but they weren't, they weren't throwing fits. I mean, Nimoy and Shatner were very professional and they all wanted this thing to happen. So they weren't like saying, no, I won't do it. 
uh, but they would come in and say, look, wouldn't it be better if we did this? And I can see myself doing these lines much easier than doing those lines. So you have a lot of those meetings that we've got the transcripts for, and we put pieces of that in the book. Uh, but everybody is obviously working towards the same goal. There aren't any fist fights on the set or anything like that. Um, yet again, my mind's a little bit blurry right now. I apologize. I was just at a hot doctor's appointment and things did not go the way I wanted them to. So oh, uh, my mind, my mind's a little uh, blank right now, but you, you talk in the book about how the original, like final cut of the movie wasn't seen by executives until the day of the premiere. Correct. Am I getting no, that wrong? They, 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 yeah, uh, uh, close, no cigar. But um, <laughs> what ha what happened is the special effects house that Paramount uh, brought in, yeah, uh, couldn't cut it, and right, a yeah. year a year after they had been working on it, Weiss ordered them to be fired because uh, he went into the screening room to see what they had done in a year, and there was only a couple minutes of footage, and none of it was usable. And he was and he was on a deadline. He knew that Paramount had already sold this in advance to open on December 7th, 79. And he goes into the screening room towards the end of uh, uh, 78 when they're film where they're just about done filming everything. And and the effects house has been working since the beginning of 78, actually since late 77. And there's nothing to show for it. So he said, fire them. They brought in. Uh, New people, uh, people who had worked on Star Wars and uh, Doug Trumbull and people like that, and uh, and they had to start from scratch. And they had oh about ten months to get it all done. But uh, you know there were so many special effects in this movie uh, back then. You didn't have CGI, so you know ten months wasn't a lot of time. Uh, so they they Paramount had already squandered five million dollars. Now they have to start over. And, uh, and so they're doing that, and they literally finished doing the effects about a week before the premiere on December 7th. And that's when Roddenberry and his staff and the Paramount executives were able to finally sit down and Bob Weiss and see the, uh, the final assembly print with the effects in there and everything else. Now, Weiss had been editing the movie all along, but he didn't have any effects to put in. You know, they had uh, Jerry Goldsmith do the score, but he was basically doing the score to a script and storyboards. So it wasn't until a week before the premiere when it was going to open in 200 theaters that um, that they were able to sit down and see the first assembly print. And they all knew that it needed more work that it needed to be test screened before some audiences and collect notes from the audiences, comment cards, and go in and do another edit and so forth. But there was no time. They had to make 200 prints. And Weiss flew out for the premiere in Washington, D.C. on uh, December 7th, or was it 6th? The premiere may have been on the 6th, and it opened on the 7th. Um, so that was going to be on the 6th. And... Uh, he flew out there that uh, that day carrying a wet print in a case, and that wet print was uh, was screened. Meanwhile, back in Hollywood, they're making another 200 prints, mass producing them using 
multiple different processing labs to do it and flying them out by special air carrier to all the theaters that were going to be opening this thing on December 7th. So uh, the cast uh, hadn't seen it. I mean, nobody had seen it really except Roddenberry and Weiss and uh, a couple and a couple other people, John uh, uh, Povel and the Paramount executives. They saw it a few days before. Uh, so the cast came out to Washington, D.C. for the premiere, and they're all sitting there, and the lights dim, and the thing comes up. And some of them liked it. Shatner liked it. Uh, some of them didn't. Walter told me, and it's in the book, about how he just kept sinking lower and lower in his seat, and he didn't want it it to end because he knew when it ended the lights were going to come up and he was going to have to try to smile (laughs) (laughs) and so it was the drama is just everywhere in the interviews the memos the 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 ticking bomb the the ticking clock as you're you're ticking down to the premiere and are we going to make it are we going to make it uh everything else it's uh, you know as a writer you can't make this kind of stuff up uh, same thing happened with the original series. I mean, when I started going through those memos, through all the show files, it was like the drama is just there everywhere. And all I had to do was bring this stuff together, put it together, and kind of be the, the narrator to take people through. And you had used a word before, Chris. You said narrative. Yeah. Uh, I, n- I never really had one because I didn't have to have one. You know, I didn't have to invent drama. The drama is rich throughout. It's just a matter of what parts of the memos do we include, what parts of the interviews do we include, uh, putting in the clutch pedals that I have to put in to tie everything together and explain things to people um, and about how Hollywood works and so forth. Uh, so that was my the burden. That burden was on me. But the story was solid from the get go. One of the things I want to ask, because you don't find too many uh, old television shows that have the creative library that Gene kept. Uh, Most documents are destroyed after production, but Gene had the tendency to keep everything. Yeah, he did. Did did you ask him why? Like, that seems uh, like a hoarder. So I I did. I did. But I can answer it better with a memo that he wrote. And it's in. (laughs) Either he wrote it to Justman or Justman wrote it to him. I'm quite sure it was him writing it to Justman. I'm, I'm positive now that I think about it. It's in season three of the first three books, the original series. And Bob Justman's leaving halfway through the third season. He's been there since the, the first pilot. But his heart is breaking because the budget's been cut, the time slot, the fact that they know NBC's not going to give him a fourth season for any reason. Even if it suddenly shot up in the ratings, they wouldn't give him a fourth season. They, NBC wanted to be done with it. Uh, so he, he just had to go. And uh, he turned in his resignation, and he, and he left the show halfway through that year. And, um, and he wrote goodbye letters to everybody, and we print those in the, in the book. And they're very touching. Uh, and, uh, and Roddenberry writes to Bob, Just, uh, Bob Justman, responding to the goodbye letter that he received. And and he just says, it's been such a pleasure working with you too, et cetera, et cetera. Couldn't have done it without you. I learned so much from you. We learned from each other. And he said, you know, but, you know, it's good that we put everything in memos because one day some biographer is going to be going through all these memos that we took the time to write and save. 
and the history of what we've done and how hard we worked will be will be there. And uh, and it really hit me when I read that memo because I was the biographer and I was writing these books with their blessing. And and here was a memo talking about the very reason why they did it. Now to, pre- you- to preserve the history because they knew that they had worked harder and tried harder than anybody else in television, that they were doing something that was so much more special than anything else on television. And, and they wanted to preserve the history of it. And that's why they were so willing to uh, support me and this book series so that these memos and the history of everything they went through could be there for the fans to read. So before we wrap up here, because we're coming up on the hour mark, and I don't want you to be able to have the enjoyable rest of your evening and potentially watch that presidential debate that's happening tonight in your country. Uh, can we use the word enjoyable for that? <laughs> I'm oh, dreading it, but, oh, I, but I'll I, watch it. <laughs> I, I'm going to watch it just for the pure fun of it. Um, yeah. You've written six books on the original series. You've gotten up to 1979. What's in the future now? Do you see Actually, I got, in, I got four, five, yeah, six, I got well. 80s? I got all the way through 1980 because I cover the release of the movie, the reviews, the box office, but I also cover in this volume three the beginning of Wrath and Con because <laughs> even though the movie was was the second biggest box office hit of the year, um, and and the only reason it was number two is because it was released on December 7th. So it was only in three weeks of release in, in 79. Uh, but it was the second biggest box office release in 80. But it already had had a lot of people had already seen it before 1980 began. Or it would have been number one. Uh, so even though it did extremely well, uh, the reviews were mixed. And, and so much was spent because of Paramount. They had to find a fall guy. So they basically locked Gene Roddenberry out, and they tried to continue Star Trek without him. And so I felt I had to cover the first part of the fight uh, for Rathacon, because it's a direct result of Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is what this book was about. So it kind of takes you into that, and and, uh, you get teased about... What can now come up? So to answer your question, yeah, I'd like to do a book that covers the next uh, f- five movies that they did um, with the original cast, about 100-something pages on each. And uh, I've got all the research already. I've got the memos. i got all that stuff. So I'd like to do that. And I would like to do a three-book set on uh, Next Gen because it was the very next thing that they did and the last thing done during Gene Roddenberry's life. And you, you um, have a so, bit of a, a connection with the next generation as well. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. And so whether I do these books or not is dependent on a couple things. If I live long enough to do them. <laughs> and if if the current books that have all come out this year, this new three book set does well enough to where I can afford to do them. And also that I get the cooperation I need from CBS and Paramount. So there are uh, factors involved, but I can tell you, I want to do them and I've already collected a ton of research to do them. So chances are I will. And that's where I'll have to leave that off. 
Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to getting into rereading because, like I said, I've tried to read as quickly as possible six books in a short period of time on my Kindle. So I'm I'm looking forward to actually diving a little bit more deeper and I'll probably have like a million questions after I actually fully read all six of them. But uh, Mark, I want to thank you so much for doing this today. You're welcome. And you know what's fun? And I get told this by so many people. We haven't done any appearances this year because of COVID, but uh, at the conventions I would attend over the last several years, you know, people would come up and, and say, you know, we do like husbands and wives will say, we do a date night once a week and we'll read a chapter in your book, which will cover like an, an entire episode. And then they'll watch the episode. Yeah. And and so many people have told me that that is so much fun to do. And, and I understand it because that's how my mind works as well. Uh, I, you know, if I get a movie on DVD and it's got a making of featurette. I'll watch that first. Then I'll watch the movie. And it just makes it so much more special. Uh, but, yeah, you read a chapter and then you watch the episode and do it in chronological order. You may want to be tempted to jump ahead to your favorite episodes, but but this way you get to experience Star Trek in the order that they made them, in the order that Shatner and Nimoy and Roddenberry and everybody else experienced them. And each episode is impacted by the one they did before, because maybe that one introduced the Vulcan nerve pinch, and then it's used again here, and so forth. So you see the series building if you watch them in that proper sequence of production. And, uh, and then read that chapter, 15, 20 pages, watch the episode. And you will get so much more out of it because now you'll know where it was filmed. You'll know what went wrong. You'll know why in shore leave there's a chain around the lion's neck or tiger's neck. Uh, and you read about how it got loose and it almost killed Shatner. And so when it came time to have to film it, they put a chain around it, and they weren't going to take that thing off. And for year, decades, I would watch that episode, and I'd go, why is there a chain around its neck? <laughs> it's supposed to be in the wild. It's supposed to be dangerous. And you can see this chain around it. Why would they do that? Well, you find out. So so it's, it's fun to read the chapters, watch the episode. That's what, how I would recommend people doing it. And I guarantee you, if you read these new books, you're going to definitely want to watch the movie again. And you'll probably appreciate it all the more. Because while it's a little slow paced, it's really quite good. It's really very faithful to Star Trek. And, and they put so much thought into that. And you see the thought. You see them coming up with the ideas. You see them discussing it all. And so when you see the movie again, you, you really do appreciate it, I think, on a whole other level. I've Chris, it's ask. been an absolute pleasure. It has been, and I appreciate all your time, Mark. Greatly appreciate it. For my listeners who are still here, uh, be sure to uh, check out the show notes below, the links to buy all six copies of all six editions or volumes of Mark's books will be there. Uh, and the publisher is Jacob Brown's Media Group, correct? Correct. Uh, Jacob Brown Press, an imprint of Jacob Brown Media Group. And if you get the books directly from their web store, which is jacobsbrownmediagroup.com. Uh, you can get them signed by the author and the matching bookmarkers. And these are hardbacks, uh, which are only available in America, but they can be shipped to Canada. They can be shipped to England. Uh, you just have to pay those terrible international shipping prices, but that's one way of getting something that's not available in your countries otherwise. 
Thank you once again for listening to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you love this episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. All the links to our social media accounts are in the show notes or visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. Be sure to tune in for our next episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. Once again, thank you. Whoa!